with me there. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. In the first gathering, I did that to them on stage. Second gathering, I was nicer. Ecclesiastes 11. So we've been working our way through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new with us, uh, this is one of the books in the Old Testament in which uh, the, the preacher, as he's called in the book, seeks to answer a question that's asked in the very first chapter. The question is essentially this, uh, what is there to be gained in life? It's a way of asking, what is life for? Is there any meaning to it? Does anything matter? Is there anything of lasting, durable significance in this life? And the preacher has taken us on lots of journeys as we've gone over these weeks together, the last 10 weeks. He's taken us down a particular path only then to say, uh, that, that arena of life might provide certain kinds of things in a temporary sense, but it's not a source of lasting meaning. And so he's taken us down dead ends again and again and again. But in this last section of the book, what's going to happen is he will begin to lay out for us certain conclusions. And the, the final conclusion, the answer to the question that's in chapter 1 doesn't come until literally the last two sentences in the book. But as he's sort of building to that final point, he's going to give us certain conclusions, certain lessons that we're to take away from the journey together, and we'll begin that uh, process this morning. And so let me ask you to fill in this blank as we get started. Taking risks is. Taking risks is. Daunting, exhausting, scary, exciting, uncomfortable, inevitable. What would you say? As you think about what a risk is and what it's like to endeavor in them, how would you fill in that blank, taking risks is? Well, one of the answers the Scripture gives is that taking risks is biblical. Taking risks is biblical. Does that surprise you? That God would speak to something as practical and as common as taking risks. That, that's right. God cares whether you take chances or not. In fact, He's given specific commands about it. And that's what our passage is about today. Sometimes we can find ourselves getting into certain habits in which we're really not taking any chances. You might call them riskless ruts. Believe it or not, the Scriptures say we ought not let that happen. The Scriptures commands us, in fact, to take bold but wise risks. Here's the way the preacher puts it in the first two verses of chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Two commands mark the beginning of this passage, cast in verse 1 and give in verse 2. Compared to other books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes gives relatively few commands. It more is the description of somebody 
who's given themselves to a particular journey, and then we're, we're to draw conclusions based upon it. But when the book does give commands, we ought to sort of sit up on the edge of our seats because that's where the application in the book really lies. It tells us what exactly to do with what we've been told. And those two verbs are commands, cast and give. Now, those are rather difficult to interpret. Let's start first with what it says in verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters. Now, imagine somebody driving down to Fry's as a result of this sermon, buying a loaf of bread, heading over to Tempe Town Lake and just setting that whole loaf in the water. And then you stand there and watch and wait. What's going to happen to that loaf of bread? Well, if any fish are currently living, those of you who've been around a while know that lake tends to not do very well. But that bread, that loaf would begin to bear the weight of the sopping up of the water. It would slowly sink a little bit, and then it would gently float away. Now, if you were taking this verse literally, then the promise you'd be given is, come back later, and it'll come back to you. And that's supposed to make you really happy, because everybody wants a big, soggy loaf. Now, taken plainly, we understand that that cannot be what this means. Clearly, something else is going on. And so the question we've got to ask is, what does this metaphor mean? What does this metaphor mean? Some understand both the command to cast and the command to give as referring to financial generosity. So it means something like this. If you live generously, if you don't hoard your possessions to yourself, but if you give liberally, generously, frequently, then help will eventually circle back to you when you need it. So I'm just stating in, in general a wisdom principle that those who hoard often end up losing even what they hoard, but those who give don't often lack. Now, it could mean that. There are passages like Luke 6 and 2 Corinthians 9 that teach that very thing. That is a biblical idea. But I think there's another possibility here that is probably more likely in what this text means. It could mean that, but I think it probably means something else. A different idea is the point of emphasis here. Cast and give may be speaking about taking bold but necessary risks. Now, how is that possible with this metaphor? Here's what I think is being said to us. Uh, in the ancient world, business was often done through international trade. The reason for that is if, if you owned a business, your business probably was built on the materials available to you in a close geographical area. And so, if you were a farmer who could grow grain because that was the area of the world that you lived in, then you had plenty of bread, but you may lack metal, for example, to build tools. And so how did you get them? Well, you got them through trading some of your grain for the resources of a business from somewhere else. And so you would load your grain on a boat 
and then send it off to another country. You didn't jump on Amazon and order what you needed. Instead, you traded some of your own goods for someone else's goods. The catch is there was no prime shipping. So if you sent some of your grain, it could be months, maybe even up to a year or slightly longer before you got a return on your investment. That grain you'd watch float out on the sea and you would hope someday it would return to you. I think that's what's being talked about here. This was a risky form of business with a lengthy waiting period. Then this, if that's what verse 1 means, then this is first of all a call to embrace wise business opportunities. And so the preacher is telling us it's possible to play it safe in such a way that your unwillingness to take risks could in fact be your downfall. Now we know that that's true of businesses. The question is, is it also true of Christians? Is it true of families? Is it true of churches? Well, the answer to all those is yes. Spiritually, relationally, in the church, in your schooling, in your relationships, in your education, it can be disastrous to never take calculated risks. For example, if you never try to build new friendships, if you never apply to work for a different company when your present company is not good to work for, if you won't ask her on a date, if you neglect allowing a college student to live with you because it might at first be uncomfortable, if you refuse to push yourself to read something you may not initially understand, if you can't ever bring yourself to move out, if you never volunteer until you quote-unquote know enough, if you and your husband decide not to have kids because you're afraid of how you'll do and how they'll turn out, you may in fact cripple the very kingdom potential God has put in you to accomplish things for His good. Wisdom says, don't be overly cautious. Don't be paralyzed with inactivity. Be bold. Take risks. And yet, the way this metaphor is described for us also includes the instruction not to be a dum-dum. How? Well, Let's go back to that picture of a farmer putting all the grain he has to trade on a boat. The instruction is, don't put it on one boat. Put it on seven or eight. Put it on a whole bunch. This is an ancient way of saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket, which still doesn't mean much to us, although we understand that metaphor. It's simply saying, diversify your investments. When you take risks, take them wisely, intelligently. Now, we are, we are a diverse church. As I look around, there are people from all different walks of life and even cultural backgrounds. And yet, even though that makes it hard to give a whole bunch of specific examples of how this would work itself out, my guess is you already readily have something that's come to mind. 
in which you're wondering, have I been too cautious with that? Have I been too cautious with that? Just think with me here then about this in a general way. There are many risks in life you could take. We all know that. But Ecclesiastes is telling us there are risks in life that you should take. Some risks are vital to our growth, to our progress and maturity, even to the spread of the gospel. Giving a portion to seven or eight simply means take risks, but be wise at how you go about it. A simple example might be if you're a junior or senior in high school. Apply to the school you really, really, really want to go to, but don't apply only to that school. Apply also to other schools. That's a simple example. Why would that be the case? Why is it important to take bold risks, but not to expect one course of action to work out exactly how you want it to? Well, the end of verse 2 tells us, you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Boy, is that the truth. That sure strikes us differently than it would have before the pandemic, doesn't it? We are well accustomed in the last 18, 19, 20 months with things we never imagined could happen, happening. One result of that may be that we're finding ourselves being too cautious. How many times have you asked someone to mentor you only to be told, I'm sorry, but I'm too busy? How many times have you given money to somebody in need only to find out later that they blew it on something frivolous? How many times have you dated somebody who turned out less, to be less than was initially advertised? How many times have you asked an unbelieving friend to read the Bible with you, only for that relationship to then become permanently altered? The point here is that we must take calculated risks in life, because bold risks are acts of obedience. They're part of what God says we're supposed to do. That's true financially, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, even physically. We must take risks. And yet, the thing that makes them risky is we don't know the outcome. And yet, we're still supposed to do them. Life under the sun, you might say, has a way of throwing a lot of curveballs. And so, when we take risks... We're to be wise and diversify. We're to not count on one thing to be the whole focus of life, and if that one thing works out, then everything will be fine. Instead, we're to diversify. Don't count on one friendship or one mentor to give you everything you need to grow. Don't count on one accountability partner to handle the weight of all your dark stuff. Don't count on your GC, your gospel community, to be the totality of your experience in your church. Don't count on one ministry area to exhaust all of your potential. Don't follow the advice 
of only one mentor. Don't read only one author. Don't allow yourself to be convinced that one decision will turn everything around, like one new roommate or one new financial endeavor. You want to diversify your life. Yes, take bold action for the cause of Christ, even though you know you don't know how it will turn out. But don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uncertainty, brothers and sisters, is no excuse for inactivity. We simply must take risks, all the while reminding ourselves that we do not know what the future will hold. Some initiatives we take will fail, while others will flourish. And uncertainty about that mustn't paralyze us. We cannot make what we don't know an excuse to do what we know we ought. Ecclesiastes is clear. There's a whole lot we do, we do not know. But God knows. And that is enough. Now think with me about who it is in Ecclesiastes that's saying this. He is somebody who's asked an enormous existential question. What is there in life that really matters? What makes life meaningful? Is there any point to living? Why is death worse than life, if it is? These are major questions that he's asked. And then he sought the answer to them, not through books, but through experience. And inevitably, what has that meant? It's meant he's failed over and over and over because he said, I'm going to try pleasure as the meaning of life. And he gave himself fully to pleasure, and that didn't provide the ultimate meaning in life. I mean, he gave himself to work, and work didn't provide the ultimate meaning in life. Do you see? This is somebody who's failed repeatedly in his biggest, most important question. That person is telling us, you need fear, no failure. I hope you'll let that reality sink in this morning. Somebody who failed a ton is the one saying, people who love God, follow God, serve God. We would say today, Christians, Christians of all people ought to be the ones who are not afraid of failure. Ambiguity must not be a justification for chronic inaction. Because when it comes to that, terrible consequences are sure to follow. Now, we're a church full of life and vitality. One of the great blessings of uh, living in the shadow of a university is that there's constantly new young people. That's one of the things we love the most about this church family. There is an endless stream of young people full of hope and life and expectation for what's ahead. Now, we're also a church full of worry, full of anxiety, full of fear. 
Quite a few of us struggle with thinking we must make the perfect decision at every turn in our lives. Because if we don't, we will end up being in a bottomless pit of patheticness. That somehow one bad, even one big bad decision can somehow derail and throw us off the path that God has for us. A lot of you grew up in a world where even the worst team in the t-ball league got a trophy. And I think what that does to people is you get used to thinking everybody wins all the time. And so as you get older and you get in more environments in which your parents don't control everything in this little bubble and you're no longer in t-ball, you're in the real world, then as you move up into college and then out of college, life gets much, much, much harder than you ever imagined. And you can become paralyzed by trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. And life feels so risky. I think this is especially true for well-meaning but inexperienced Christians. Because then on top of this feeling of, I've got to make it in the real world, and it's way harder than it was in the classroom, then there's also this feeling of guilt and expectation that you think is from God, as though God is putting that weight of don't make a mistake on top of it. Are you with me? Does this make sense? This is a huge issue for our church. You cannot wait to act until every variable is somehow predictable, until it feels like you can hold that decision and look at it from every angle and somehow have a guaranteed controlled outcome that won't involve any pain. That is not how life works. Maybe in t-ball, but not in life. To have that attitude is to demand something from God that God never promises to give. Fear of failure is something that we Christians ought never to feel. And when we do, to recognize that fear isn't from God. Because, friend, let's say... You enroll in that new class in which you're exploring a particular field, and then you find out, oh, I really suck at that. Or let's say you do, in fact, ask her out on a date, and lo and behold, she does say no, just like you were afraid of. Let's say you take that new job, and that company ends up being just as bad as the last one. Let's say you do decide you want to have kids. And the pregnancy tests come back negative again and again and again. While any one of those things may be painful, in the end, why should a Christian never fear failure? 
Well, it's because your identity isn't staked on any of those things. And because the one who holds, as we learned several weeks ago, the whole world in his hand, he's holding you. And he will take care of you. And you are not the decisions you make. So you can try all kinds of things and fail miserably at all of them and still be completely fine on the inside because your life is not the sum of your choices. Your life is who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. And therefore, we ought to feel the most free to act. How do we get there? What is the way from, I'm afraid of risk, not to, uh, I, I love jumping off bridges? That's not what I'm trying to describe. There are a few of us weirdos. But that's not the picture. What I'm preaching toward is not the person who feels no sense of danger when they ought to. Instead, we're trying to say, how do you move from fear, worry, anxiety, paralysis, where your, your mind is constantly racing with all the possibilities of every bad thing that could happen if you do X? How do you move from that to a place of calm, peace, settledness, in which you make decisions that you know are risky, and yet the outcome of those decisions doesn't leave you feeling terrified. How do you get there? Well, the passage is going to tell us in a rather strange way. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Can I get a hallelujah? If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. All right. Well, thanks a lot, preacher. These may strike us as rather odd comparisons, but the point is self-evident. What happens up in the clouds is inescapable to us. It's well beyond our control. There's nothing we can do about it. Certain things just happen. A tree falling is going to do what it's going to do. It is beyond our control. It is inevitable. That's what he's saying. Now, why does that matter? Well, he's going to tell us in the next section. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. Here's what the preacher's saying. Go back to that farmer, the business owner who we began with, who's going to, uh, he's deciding if he's going to sow his field or reap his field. Let's take the front end of that. He's got the field. It's been provided for him. And yet, he can wake up each day, go outside, sort of lick his finger and feel if there's any wind. And if there's any wind, he might reach the conclusion, oh, oh, I just can't sow my seed today. I don't want to waste any of it. This is precious seed. Maybe tomorrow the weather will be better. And he may wake up and do that over and over and over and over until the sowing season has ended and now that seed is worthless. Or it could happen on the opposite end. He may have 
sowed wisely, but now he's looking out at his field and seeing this wonderful, beautiful golden grain, and it's time to harvest it. And yet, he may wake up and look out and see, kind of like we do, oh, there's weird, there's a cloud. Maybe that cloud is going to develop into a monsoon, and if, if that monsoon dumps too much rain while I'm harvesting, then the whole crop will be ruined. So I'll wait, only for that to happen again and again and again, which would mean that crop would soil. The point is, the farmer who waits for the perfect conditions before he sows never will. The farmer who frets endlessly over the weather will not reap. There are things beyond our control. We have to act, brothers and sisters, even in the face of uncertainty. This message is not, ask God what you ought to do that will work itself out and He will tell you. That's probably not true. Ask God what you ought to do. Listen to the counsel of others. Rely on what the Scriptures have revealed. Try to gain a sense of what's wise. And then do it. And it may or may not work out. And either way, it's totally fine. That is the message of Ecclesiastes 11. Think with me about how this applies to the procrastinator. Now, if that's you, I'm not looking at you and no one sent me your mail, okay? But think with me about how this applies to procrastination. When I was in school and uh, the, the thing we all hate, this is like, um, still I hear it from my own kids. The thing we hate is group work, right? Because you're going to get saddled with somebody who's not good to be in a group with. Sometimes those people who wait till the last minute to do their part of the group work are just lazy bums. Sometimes that happens. But what I've learned as I've become an adult and worked with people trying to help them be more productive in their lives, what I've actually come to see is that most people who procrastinate, procrastinate not because they don't care. It actually has nothing to do with it. They procrastinate because they're so petrified of not doing it right. In their minds, this thing, whatever it is, has to be done with perfection. It has to be exactly right. And if it's not, if I'm afraid I can't make it exactly right, then I'm not going to start. And so there's all this fretting before the paper even begins. How does this message in Ecclesiastes 11 apply to that situation? Well, excuses thrive where worry and fear abound. Excuses thrive where worry and fear abound. If you wait to act until everything's certain, managed, controlled, predictable, then you're going to be writing a lot of papers a few hours before they're due. And frankly, that's a miserable way to live because you're stewing needlessly. Instead, just knock the dang thing out. And so what? If you get a B instead of an A, 
or a C instead of a B. That says absolutely nothing about your identity. Your identity is all bound up in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what He did. Christians, we must trust God's good providence enough to step out and try, even when the results are not certain. It's part of the life of faith. Now, verse 5 pushes this in a rather striking analogy. It says, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes into the bones in the woman, in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. That's a rather clunky way to us of saying something that's self-evident. Even with modern technology, if you've, um, if you've had a baby in the last 15 years, then you have had the ability to go to the doctor, have this thing put on your belly, and see in 3D your alien child. It is incredible what can be seen. It is absolutely amazing. And yet, even with all our modern technology, nobody knows. How does the immaterial part of a person join the material part? Friends, every human being who has ever existed is made up of a material part, so body, flesh, and an immaterial part, soul, spirit. How is it that body meets soul and spirit? Well, with Adam, we're told explicitly exactly how that happened. With everybody else, we simply don't know. Does does the immaterial meet the material when the sperm meets the egg? Maybe. Does the immaterial meet the material a few days later? Maybe. We're not told. But don't don't get too bound up in the science of that because the analogy that's given to us is simply this. There are things we don't know about pregnancy and there is much we do not know about what God is doing. There are things in the future that He has planned that we have no idea exactly what He's going to do. And because He loves us, He does not tell us. Do you see that? My goodness. If I had known 30 years ago what the last 30 years would bring, it would have been absolutely crushing. So overwhelming, it would have been impossible to go on. Not knowing with certainty what one decision we make is going to result in is a good gift of God. He will always tell us enough that we know He's there, that we know He loves us, and that we're not trapped. But He's not going to tell us all there is to know. There are secret things that belong only to God. Despite the fact that we live in an era of human history 
in which there has literally never been more information available to us. Do you realize that more knowledge is not what we need to live in a better world? You think about the access to information that exists today that even 10 years ago was not accessible. Has it made humanity kinder? more for each other, more gentle and forgiving. More information is not what we need. There are things that Siri and Google are completely useless for. These are the secret things, the Scripture calls them, that belong to the Lord. They are things that God doesn't tell us. He makes everything, He rules and He reigns, He does what He pleases, and no one can stop that. Our weaknesses, therefore, need not cause paralysis, because while we have limits, God does not. While our knowledge is limited, God's isn't. And because we know His character as so consistently revealed in His will, in His Word, we can trust Him. Therefore, the passage ends with a final command. Verse 6 says this, In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. Brothers and sisters, we're being told here at the end of this section to live with a holy diligence in whatever we do. That whatever we do, we ought to give ourselves fully to it and to not rely on, for example, one friend to be able to bear the weight of all our friendship, desires, and needs. Instead, diversify. Get more than one friend. Get a bunch of them, as many as you can stand. And in those friendships, realize you're going to receive different blessings from different kinds of people. There is much that we do not know. That is the great refrain of this passage that we've read today. Four separate times, the text says, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We are not self-sovereigns. Every beat of our hearts is a miracle caused by God. Every synapse firing is His sustaining power. There is much we don't know, but He knows all things. He knows every possibility about every imaginable situation. He is in control. Therefore, far from inaction, we followers of God are are to be people of courageous diligence. People who don't fear failure. All that failure means is try something else. That's it. Because our knowledge is limited and God's is unlimited, the preacher is telling us, we must work hard, giving ourselves to various endeavors without in any way feeling the burden to control the outcome. The outcome is not ours to control. The more you try, 
the more frustrated your life will be. We can risk wisely even as we aim to trust completely. Uncertainties abound. Failure to sow leads to sloth. Failure to reap leads to ruin. God's people are to be people of action. We might summarize this passage this way. In light of our inability to know what God has planned, we must take bold but wise action. You see, it's precisely because we don't know, but we know He knows that we can act. That may seem counterintuitive to you, but friend, it is reality that God has given us a sphere in which we can access and think and develop and pray and seek counsel, and it is not exhaustive. We will have to make decisions that involve risk, but that risk stretches our faith and grows us which is actually far more important than making the quote-unquote right decision. You will not grow if you refuse to take risks. Now, it's not just the book of Ecclesiastes that tells us this. It's not just an obscure Old Testament book that probably if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian a while, you've never made it this far into Ecclesiastes. Maybe you started and got frustrated and gave up. But there are other far more commonly read books that say the same thing. James, for example, Jesus' brother, told us this in James 4. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. What he meant is, I'm going to act. I'm going to take this risk but I'm going to do it knowing that I don't control the outcome. God controls the outcome. And I'm quite happy with that because He knows better than I do. Church, let's move ahead as Christians taking bold but wise risks for the kingdom of God. All the while telling ourselves internally, not things like, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have done that, I don't know how it's going to turn out, oh my gosh, ah, ah. Instead, If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. Church, we can do this ultimately because Jesus never takes risks. Jesus knows everything. And Jesus is fully capable of accomplishing everything He sets out to do. Therefore, there are no risks for Him. Nothing is uncertain. Nothing is dependent on what somebody else does in a way that could change the outcome. Therefore, risk is eliminated. And because He rules and reigns without risks, we can trust Him as we take risks. Whatever He wants to happen will always happen. That's why we say, if the Lord wills. May we act for His glory and our good. Will you stand with me and let's pray.
Before I voice a prayer on our behalf, I'd encourage you to take a moment and talk to the Lord about what you've heard this morning.